This episode of Crosscut Talks is supported by Alaska Airlines. Hey, welcome to Crosscut Talks. I'm Mark Bumgarten, the managing editor at Crosscut. And today we're talking about work and what to make of all the upheaval that's happening right now when it comes to how we work, where we work, and what we do. This is no small issue. Our jobs are a huge part of our lives. For most of us, they take up a third of our days, at least. And they provide the paychecks that fuel our livelihoods. In America, they also provide our health insurance. And then, of course, there's the fact that our identities are so tightly aligned to what we do when we're on the clock. Work is an avenue for independence and self-actualization, as well as exploitation. So, when the pandemic came and upended work, it really upended so much more, including our sense of self and self-worth. Two years on from that initial disruption, America's work culture is in a very uneasy place. The so-called Great Resignation continues as workers shift from one job to another. Meanwhile, high-profile unionization efforts are signaling a new era of organization, and management is trying to figure out how to return to some kind of normalcy, or if that's even possible. All of these issues are of high interest to this week's guests, Sarah Jaffe and A.L. Press, who joined us at this year's Crosscut Festival to talk about the current state of work in America. A.L. Press is an author and journalist who has contributed to The New Yorker and The New York Times, among other publications. He is also the author of a number of books, including, most recently, Dirty Work, Essential Jobs and the Hidden Toll of Inequality in America. Sarah Jaffe is a Type Media Center reporting fellow who has written for The New York Times, The Nation, and The Guardian, to name just a few. She is also an author, most recently of Work Won't Love You Back, How Devotion to Our Jobs Keeps Us Exploited, Exhausted, and Alone. Leading the conversation is Sarah Bernard, the host of CrossCut's podcast, This Changes Everything. At the root of Sarah's questioning here is a larger question. Is this a transformational moment? It may be, but as our guests point out in the conversation, the evolution of work is not linear. It's an assorted series of progressions and regressions fueled by technology and culture, as well as the will of the workers and those who employ them. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. If you have any feedback, please send it to talks at crosscut.com. Okay, on with the show. Sarah and Ale, thanks so much for being here. Thank you so much, Sarah. Great. Um, so, Sarah, uh, your book came out in January 2021, um, and books take a while. So I imagine that you were working on it before the pandemic hit. Um, but, of course, it feels incredibly relevant right now, even just exploited, exhausted, and alone. Uh, that certainly re resonates for a lot of people in this moment, I think. Um, so I was wondering, uh, did the pandemic change these work dynamics that you describe in your book or just shed light on something that was already there? I think, you know, I often talk about what's been going on with work over the last 40 years or so as being like all of us are in a fro the frogs in the pot of boiling water, right? Things have been getting worse, but often getting worse slowly. And then we've had a few moments where it gets worse a lot all at once. 
1973, you had a lot of job loss at the beginning of, of rapid deindustrialization. You have the 2008 financial crisis, and then you had COVID, where you had basically people divided into three groups. You had people who lost their jobs. You had people who were suddenly working from home doing a lot of this. Um, and you had people who were still going to do the same job, except it has now just gotten a lot more dangerous than maybe it already was, or dangerous in ways that you never expected your retail job could be. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And how about you, Ail? Um, same thing. I imagine you're working on your book for a long time. What did you originally set out to do with your book? And, and did the pandemic impact that at all or in, impact the ultimate thesis? I was definitely working on the book before the pandemic. Um, and the pandemic, in a way, um, uh, brought home and echoed a lot of the themes that I was writing about, because the central thing in terms of work that I think it revealed is that as a society, we had this sort of largely hidden class of what are now called essential workers, um, delivering food, uh, you know, uh, cleaning hotel rooms, um, doing all kinds of things, um, driving buses, uh, that, uh, that when the pandemic happened, they were the folks who were not allowed to shelter in place. They had to keep going to work. And as Sarah just said, you know, working in under very dangerous circumstances. Well, my book, Dirty Work, is about another hidden class of workers that I contend society depends on, um, but doesn't generally want to see or hear from. Um, folks who, undocumented immigrants who work on the kill floors of industrial slaughterhouses or mental health aides who work in uh, jails and prisons, which are our largest uh, mental health institutions. These are, um, I call this dirty work. And what I mean by that is it's morally troubling jobs and activities that go on in the shadows um, because of policies we've all bought into to some extent or gone along with um, and that keep our society running. And those jobs continue to be done as well. Uh, during the pandemic. And for me, what the pandemic kind of brought home and, and crystallized was this sort of relationship, the relationship between, um, you know, for lack of a better word, the privileged and, and the folks who are running around incurring these both physical hazards and safety hazards during the pandemic. And, and in the case of the, the folks who doing, do the dirty work in my book, also emotional and psychological hazards, because many of these workers suffer hidden injuries. Hidden injuries of class is the term that, that comes up in my book. Um, and it's, it's from the sociologist Richard Sennett, but it refers to things like shame and stigma and feeling degraded and feeling demeaned and experiencing trauma or moral injury. These things are pervasive in a lot of uh, occupations in this country. Um, but they're not really part of our conversation about jobs and inequality. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they're they're more they're more hidden. Um, I th think that seems like a big theme in your book is that essential jobs. These are essential workers are considered essential in some way, but but a lot of people don't even kind of realize they're happening. I mean, that was um, you mentioned, you know, essential workers. I mean, in some way, you were already sort of profiling essential workers before they were called essential workers. And I, I, I kind of just wanted to ask you directly, Ale, um, do you think that talking about essential workers changed the way the country views and treats essential workers? I think it did not change the way a lot of 
powerful politicians and um, institutions treat these workers. Um, I think the term was very cynically exploited. Um, essential workers were, were rolled out uh, by Trump during the Republican National Convention as the heroes of the pandemic. And it was notable to me that there was no one in that group that was an un undocumented immigrant like the folks that I'd interviewed who worked in poultry slaughterhouses. Um, and furthermore, there was no mention of the fact that no protections were given to uh, people working in meat plants uh, and, and in poultry and other sectors of, of the food industry. Uh, what there was was an order through the Defense Production Act to make sure they went back to work, that they kept producing and, and, and showing up. Um, and the reason for that is that people wanted their chicken and their beef and their pork delivered to their doors, again, by these kind of invisible workers. Uh, and it's, it's not enough to say, oh, they're essential workers, we value them. If we value them, um, we have to alter the exploitative conditions they work under. And I, I don't think we've gotten there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Sarah, what do you what do you think about that? I mean, based on your reporting, either for your book or since, um, what do you what have you come come to see about so called essential work or essential workers? I mean, I think the important thing here, right, is that their bosses don't treat them any differently, and if anything, they're treating them worse. Um, and this is true in the visible jobs as well as the invisible jobs, right? I heard from the phrase that I heard over and over and over again from so-called essential workers is my, they say we're essential, but my boss treats me like I'm expendable. And I heard this from nurses. I heard this from teachers as well as from retail workers, as well as from people who are, you know, picking up the trash and all of this essential work that, again, we don't necessarily like to think about, but is incredibly important and already dangerous. So when we think about um, the way, the reasons that certain kinds of jobs are devalued um, and the conversation that we do have around this kind of work, it's, I think it, it gave us an opening to talk about essential work, right? To say like, oh, actually, it's really important that somebody keeps picking up the garbage every week, even though they are now risking getting COVID, picking up the garbage, in addition to all of the other ways that sanitation work is incredibly dangerous. Um, it's really important to have somebody still at the checkout counter at the grocery store. And that person is probably now taking on an additional emotional burden that they might not have had before because they're the only person that a lot of people have talked to all week when they come into the grocery store for your once a week sort of big shop during lockdown, right? We have all of these added pressures on healthcare workers, whether they be in-home healthcare workers or nurses, the cleaning crew in hospitals, right? Who have a real extra burden now and are not being given protective equipment or not being given anything. And then, you know, six months into the pandemic are realizing that this is the new normal, that now your boss has realized what you can do in an absolute crisis, what these hospital workers would do when everybody in society is depending on them. And they just wanna keep that ratcheted up, that production level, which is, you know, how they think about it, even if we're not really talking about production when we're talking about healthcare. That is the level they are now expected to work at and we're seeing, I don't know if I can say it's an unprecedented, but certainly high numbers of strikes and strike activity among hospital and healthcare workers because they're, you know, they're being clapped for and told how essential they are and how wonderful they are and how much we appreciate them. But when it comes time to renegotiate their contract, they're getting offered a 2% raise and they have to fight 
to get decent levels of staffing in the hospital because we saw hospitals that got CARES Act money that literally cut staff during the pandemic. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I want to talk a little bit more about strikes in a moment. Um, but uh, but yeah, there, I, I think I, I saw an article that you wrote, Sarah, about um, uh, the sort of hidden work of emotional labor uh, and, the, and that I believe the headline was, we need to pay key workers with more than just gratitude. So there, that is a kind of, mm -hmm. um, yeah, addressing this, this like, you know, money where your mouth is, if you will. Um, yeah, that's kind of a, a key part of, of what I'm writing about in the book, right? Which is that the idea that we should love our work, right? Al's writing about the jobs that nobody's expected to love. I'm writing about the work that we're supposed to show up to with a big smile on our faces, right? Um, and be grateful on some level that we get to do this work, whether it be, you know, sort of creative work that is seen as cool and exciting or the kind of caring work where you're expected to sort of put your patients, your students, um, your clients ahead of yourself. And in all of those cases, right, that, that pressure um, to, to do that work, again, for the sort of gratitude and the thank yous and that kind of thing, rather than decent pay, time off, and protective equipment that you need to do the work well. You know, that term moral injury that Al mentioned that I heard for the first time from workers during this pandemic, because, you know, again, you got these hospital workers, you got teachers, you got all of these people trying desperately to do their jobs because they do care about it, that are having to do it in these horrible conditions without the things that they need to do it well. And the feeling that you get when you have to do that is why we're also seeing massive numbers of people leaving these professions right now. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that that kind of brings us to the great resignation. Um, I have actually also seen it called a lot of other things, including the great renegotiation and even the great exaggeration. <laughs> um, so, uh, so first, Sarah, could you tell us who is quitting and why are they quitting? So I think the best term that I've heard for it actually um, comes from Rebecca Given, who is a labor scholar at Rutgers University, and she called it the great job shift. Right, because it's not like people are quitting work altogether, most of them. Um, you know, I've talked to a few people who had been restaurant workers or, or nurses who decided to take early retirement. So there are some people who are, are trying to check out of work altogether, but most people are either leaving a field that they had been in that no longer feels safe, which is happening a lot in the restaurant industry, for instance. I just finished a piece that's not out yet on that. Um, we're seeing people leaving industries that they've been desperately trying to stay in and can no longer um, stick it out, like teaching um, and trying to find something else to do. And we're also just seeing people looking for a different job in the same field that might be better. So you might be a nurse and you might decide to go to this hospital across town that has slightly better wages and conditions than the place that you're working in now. Um, so that's, that's the renegotiation part in some ways, right? And so, you know, what we're seeing um, in many cases is a slightly tighter labor market in some of these industries, particularly the ones where we are seeing people sort of reach for the doors to the entire industry. This is why the service industry is seeing um, wage increases for the first time in quite a long time, because the minimum wage for tipped workers in America is still the same as it was 20 years ago when I was last waiting tables. Um, and it's 2.13 an hour in a lot of places. Not, I think, in Seattle. I think you have um, a normal wage scale there. But, but in a lot of places, it's still $2.13 an hour. So you see different dynamics in different places, and it's really hard to get 
to drill down into these numbers because we just don't have good numbers. Um, cities and states collect them differently. So it's hard to say a lot of things with a lot of certainty about what's going on right now. Um, I worry that sometimes it's a little bit exaggerated, but also I think that there's a real phenomenon happening here with people's understanding, you know, in a lot of cases that, you know, people realize their boss doesn't care if they die. Mm. Exactly. I mean, there, there's a sort of feels like there's this reevaluation of one's relationship with work. Um, and we're still kind of trying to collect the data on it. But, you know, something that, that is sort of a central question for me in this moment is this narrative out there about how uh, the Great Resignation in particular, but in general, we're, we're just seeing a lot of headlines about this shift in the balance of power between workers and employers. We see lots of headlines like the revolt of the American worker. Uh, people are fed up. They want work-life balance. They want fair compensation, benefits, and they believe they have the leverage to get it, um, maybe just because of this hot labor market at the moment. Um, but, uh, what, you know, what do you think of that narrative, um, Sarah? I mean, are we at a turning point or does that feel like an exaggeration? <laughs> yeah, I, I, you know, I think we have a long way to go in a lot of cases, right? There's been a lot of really genuine excitement about like the organizing surge among Starbucks workers, right? And again, we're talking to, in Seattle, or at least we're virtually in Seattle right now. So I have to talk about Starbucks and, and you know, I'm getting emails from the NLRB every day with Starbucks union elections, which is great. Um, but there are something like, I don't know how many thousand Starbucks in the country, and there are, you know, 40 something that have, you know, had union votes so far. So it's, it's, you know, these things sound exciting because we're coming up from nowhere. We're coming up from really miserable numbers in terms of unionization. We're coming up from stagnant wages for 40 something years. We're coming up from 213 an hour for service workers in a lot of places. Um, so we've got a ways to go before we're gonna see a real shift in the balance of power. You know, the same thing with the Amazon labor union vote, which is, in, I mean, just a stupendous victory for this independent union on Staten Island. And then they didn't win the second vote that they held, even though that, you know, was held after the first win. So it's a reminder that this is this is still a really, really rough time to be a working person in America and in the world. And if things are getting slightly better in some cases, they're getting slightly better after having gotten a lot worse for the last two years, too. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Ale, what do you think? I mean, I, I definitely have seen the arguments out there that that really refuting this narrative like we are not at a turning point at all things are just as bad if not worse for a lot of workers especially uh, low-income wage workers um yeah what, what do you think al about this i mean i think that um the pandemic has opened these 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 questions in a lot of people's minds and created the possibility for pretty profound rethinking um but change is hard and um you know unionizing a workplace is hard the 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 amazon story is a great reminder of how much um you know if you read any labor history any history of, of any kind of struggle for for rights and freedom um it's not linear it doesn't just happen that things click into place and and people are treated better it's a huge uh it's a long difficult challenging uh struggle that that often takes downturns before things actually improve and that could well be what what happens now um you know what, what sarah mentioned about 
uh, unionization rates, yet yeah, we're, we're, we're at such a low point um, that even if things improved, um, they wouldn't be near where things were in the 1950s in this country. Um, so uh, it's, it, I think a lot of that remains to be seen. Um, I, I also think that, um, you know, I was skeptical of the great resignation narrative, um, particularly the idea that this was some kind of lasting thing, because to be able to, the book I wrote is about workers whose choices and opportunities are very limited. And that is why they end up getting stuck doing society's dirty work. And um, we still have a very large number of people who toil in conditions that they would love to be out of, but they don't have those choices. They, they can't, you know, the, the, um, the, the immigrants I, I spoke to who worked at this poultry slaughterhouse had been working there while they were denied bathroom breaks because the line speeds were so, so fast. And this is the inhumanity of that and the humiliation of it was so extreme. Um, and when I asked them, well, so, so why didn't you quit? Um, they said, well, there's, what else am I going to do? You know, I can find a job cleaning for, you know, $12 an hour, but I was getting a couple of dollars more than that at the plant and I need it for my family. And, uh, we still have a very large class of people whose choices are not good. They're, they're stuck in, in many ways. And even if, and so, so when we think about the great resignation and this sort of moment of questioning work, we also should think about the fact that the very idea of, of sort of pausing to think about whether you want to do your job and whether it's, it's the right thing for you and, you know, what were the conditions like, that's a privilege. Um, it's a privilege everyone should have. It should be, um, you know, something that, that um, we empower people to, to, to do because work is so central to the way we fill our days and our lives. But um, it's not universal, um, you know, and, and, and that applies to so many different uh, types of workers, home health aides, janitors, um, you know, grocery clerks, truckers, um, in, in, as well as the, the folks I, I wrote about in my book. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a privilege that should be a right. Mm, yes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that, that, that was sort of where I was going to go, Al, is just this, uh, you know, this privilege of be, you know, great resignation assumes that uh, every day, everyone has the choice to quit. Um, and not everyone has that choice, you know, given, you know, opportunities or lack thereof, you know, it's like, if you can't get another job that pays as well, then probably not going to quit. Um, and so, yeah, it sounds like that, that was the case. Was that, you would say that was the case for a lot of the people you profiled in your book? Absolutely. The, one of the central ideas in my book, um, I borrow it from the political philosopher Michael Sandel, is the idea of, he has this phrase, the pressure of economic necessity. Um, and he uses that phrase um, to talk about who ends up fighting our wars, who ends up uh, you know, volunteering for this all-volunteer military. And in theory, that's a military composed of a random assortment of citizens who just happen to want to serve their country. And while that is true to some extent, there are people who, who really feel idealistic and, and are drawn to that. Um, we know better. We know that, um, you know, uh, if you're on a, you know, from, from an upper middle class background and you're on a track to go to college, it's not even a consideration. You're not even going to think about it. Whereas if you're from, um, you know, a, a depressed rural area or a town where 
there's really not a, a lot of ways to get um, access to education or to travel or to you know get some of the things that you can get perhaps by joining the military. That is a big spur. Um, and so we have a military that is disproportionately working class, disproportionately black and brown, um, disproportionately um, you know recruiting and targeting uh, areas of the country that are less privileged. Um, and I think the pressure of economic necessity shapes the labor market in other ways. And it shapes uh, what I call in the book, the moral division of labor. Who does these sort of morally treacherous jobs, these jobs that expose you to moral injury and to shame and to stigma and to these other things? Um, it's not the kids going to Stanford and Harvard. Uh, it's not the sons and daughters of senators and congressmen, certainly not uh, CEOs and, you know, the folks at, at the top of the income ladder, it's it's the less advantaged. Mm -hmm. Exactly, exactly. So the hidden toll of inequality in America, I mean, it sounds like that's a really, you know, big emphasis is this is this is another part of inequality that you really wanted to underscore. Yeah, and uh, I think that and I think that, that in, it's inequality in both the terms that Sarah described of, um, you know, Jobs are ultimately ways to make a living. And so, you know, not raising the minimum wage for, for folks working in restaurants uh, for 20 years um, is going to get people to wonder, should they should they work in those jobs? But there are also other burdens to um, different kinds of work, the psychological and emotional burdens. And those don't show up in charts and statistics, but I do think they they are part of the inequality story. There is a thing called moral inequality, which which mirrors and reinforces the economic kind. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I wanted to talk about unionization. I know that you both have brought that up. It's a big, uh, you know, of the moment topic right now. Um, and and so we've discussed a little bit, but um, Sarah, I know that you have done a lot of coverage of sort of past labor labor movements and research on sort of the history of, of these conversations over the course of the last century. And so I, I was just wondering if you could drill a little deeper on that for us. Like, where do you uh, see this moment sort of in history? Like, how do we, I mean, we touched on it a little bit already, but how, a little deeper, like how do, how do we sort of situate ourselves right now in, in the conversation about, you know, unionization efforts going on at Starbucks stores and at Amazon and these high profile labor strikes? It, you know, it feels like a lot's happening, but compared to the past, yeah, what's the context here, you, you think? Yeah, I think, you know, you always run into trouble when you try to look at the past as an indication of what the future is going to be like. Mm -hmm. um, Henry Ford wishes he had the surveillance tools that Jeff Bezos has, right? Um, so one of the things that's really important right now is to understand, and this is a sort of un undercurrent in my book, is that we are not an industrialized country anymore. We're a post-industrial country. Most jobs in the US are not assembly line jobs. They're not in factories. That's just not the dominant form of work anymore. That was the dominant form of work when we saw unions at their highest um, density in American history, right? That's true of most of the world. We have to actually now figure out what unions look like in vastly different forms of work. Um, and that is, the challenge that we're seeing, um, you know, unions are undergoing different attempts at ways to do things like organize home care workers, right? Um, in Washington state, you have a law that home care workers that are publicly funded are eligible to be in the union. Um, 
And that means that even though they work individually in different homes, they are still all members of the union, or they all can be anyway. Um, thank you to the Supreme Court for screwing with labor law. But so that was one big challenge, right? And still continues to be in states where you don't have laws that actually allow home care workers unionization rights. And so you have different challenges in terms of organizing these high turnover industries, sort of the opposite end, once again, of, of the story of the Great Resignation and of people who feel like they can't quit is the fact that a lot of these dirty jobs, a lot of these warehouse jobs, a lot of these um, fast food jobs that end up being minimum wage jobs stay that way through constant turnover. Amazon warehouses have more than 100% turnover every year. Um, so we're looking at this sort of constant churn through a series of crappy jobs, right, for a lot of people. So you won't have the same slaughterhouse job, fast food job, um, warehouse job for the next for five years. You'll have seven of them over the course of five years. Um, so how do you organize these super high turnover industries when the workforce at the beginning of your union drive is going to look really different than the workforce at the end of your union drive? Um, these are all questions that it really is hard to predict what the answer is going to be. Um, some of these industries have been around a long time, and the labor movement, as it is, has a lot to answer for in terms of not thinking that immigrant workers are worth organizing, that women workers in care industries were worth organizing, that retail workers and other high turnover industries were worth organizing. Well, guess what, guys? That's now what we've got. So because capital is going to go to uh, where it can, you know, have union free industries. So they ship the industrial work overseas to more exploitable places with worse labor laws. And what we get left is these other industries that now unions have to figure out what it looks like to organize in them. And that comes with a bunch of different questions. The good news is that it's happening. The bad news is that it's happening slowly. Um, and even something that looks really um, and is like incredibly fast, like this wave of organizing at Starbucks is, um, is still, like I said, like a kind of a drop in the bucket compared to the big CIO strikes of the 1940s, 1930s. But part of that is, again, because these are, are workplaces that have a fraction for the most part of the amount of workers that you would have had at like the Ford River Rouge plant at its height. Right. Even a 5000 person Amazon warehouse is nothing compared to some of these big factories that now, you know, are basically gone in America. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. Like both of you were kind of saying earlier, it's it's like if there is an uptick, it, it's a, it's still the, no, the total number is a lot smaller. The total percentage is a lot smaller in terms of unionization rates right now. Um, Al, for the industries you profiled and the people you profiled in your book, do you, I mean, do you see um, a path toward unionization or ways to improve working conditions? Um, I, I mean, do you, do you see any of that movement there? Um, is that happening? I mean, there, it's it's that question forces me to uh, think about another kind of question, which is which my book sort of asks readers to consider whether. Um, you know, this type of work, whether the conditions of this type of work should improve. And I think that's that's the right answer for things like poultry, um, because I don't believe we're just going to stop having uh, a society that consumes chicken and, and other forms of animal protein. Um, and but but we've seen such a regression in the conditions. And so 
not just unions, but things like um, a stronger OSHA, you know, a federal agency that can protect uh, safety standards, which, which is a joke uh, at this point in this country, um, because uh, in my experience, in my reporting, A, uh, workers didn't feel safe going to OSHA. Um, B, if they did, um, the company knew when OSHA was coming, so they'd kind of clean things up and things looked fine. Um, and C, there's no enforcement mechanisms. So the, the look at the meatpacking plants where people died of COVID uh, and look at the fines that they got. It's shocking, you know, a couple thousand dollars for for a worker who died or, you know, $10,000, $20,000. What is that to Smithfield? You know, what is that to Tyson? It's nothing. Um, uh, it's literally the cost of doing business. And so um, those things in those industries that I looked at, I think um, improving the conditions is is the goal and, and, and takes a lot of steps, not just unionization. Um, but also a role for the federal government and a role for consumers to, you know, consumers who are so conscious of how the chickens they bought were treated because, you know, is it organic? Were they humanely treated? Well, what about the workers being humanely treated? You know, what about whether they were given bathroom breaks? Those things are never on the labels. And so we have to actually have a change in, in public consciousness around those things. There were other jobs I looked at in my book where I'm kind of asking readers whether we should have these jobs at all. Um, you know, and, and the, the first part of my book is about the prison system. Um, we operate the largest prison system in the world. Um, I think very few people at this point believe that's a good thing. Um, so to some extent, we're talking about, you know, fewer jobs in those places because a healthier society should not cage, you know, more than two million of of our citizens uh, in, in um, you know, very brutal conditions and, and in, in ways that are both very expensive and, and, and actually have no real benefit collectively and, and many costs. Um, that said, you know, um, there too, the conditions matter. Um, so, you know, in, in, in jails and prisons in this country, I believe that um, in some of them, the I call the the correctional staff the other prisoners in one of my chapter because they endure and um, and actually are in the same environment uh, just on the other side of this line and even though there's this kind of us versus them uh, split that happens between the incarcerated folks and the folks who are working in the system in some ways they're inevitably both dehumanized and both suffer in, in certain ways, particularly in prisons where there are no programs there. Are, you know, the staff is very low. And so the staff, the, the, the staff that is there learns to enforce order through brutality and fear. Um, and again, the question there is, is, you know, are these jobs we want? And, you know, are, do we want so much of this in our society or should we be questioning, um, you know, whether whether it's really essential to our society? But to get us back to, to where we started, I also think that um, there's a lot that can be done to change the conditions and improve the lives of folks who get stuck doing, you know, unpleasant jobs. Mm -hmm. So right before we go to questions, I guess uh, we haven't done a lot of where are we going. It's really hard to predict, so I don't want to put you on the spot. But I just, you know, based on your reporting, um, Al, Sarah, I mean, what do you think the next few years looks like for American workers? I mean, are we seeing a trend? Are we are we going someplace that feels clear, or is it very cloudy right now? 
The thing is that these are struggles, right? That Amazon does not want its workers to unionize because Amazon does not want to have to pay them better or give them any say over working conditions. Starbucks brought back Howard Schultz because it's terrified that it's going to have a unionized workforce. Um, what conditions will look like in those places is going to depend on who wins those fights. Um, these are not just sort of trends that like happen without questions of power being brought to bear here. And that is, these are political questions, but they are also sort of shop floor struggle kind of questions. And so are conditions going to improve in this industry and go, get worse in this industry? Um, all of these are going to be really important questions going forward that we should be paying attention to no matter what industry we're in, because our conditions are affected by those of the people who are considered the most exploitable. That the wage floor is going to affect me too. Um, and I think we often think that that's not true. We often think that we are, you know, sort of safe in our middle class bubble from the jobs that we once had to do. And like my first job ever was cleaning up trash. And I worked in the service industry for 10 something years, um, including while I was getting my footing as a journalist. So, you know, to understand that these fights are actually important, not just because it's really fun to watch the Amazon workers come out of the uh, union count and hug each other and celebrate beating Jeff Bezos, um, but it was, but like, because it actually matters to me as somebody who used to live in New York City, what the working conditions are like for everybody in New York City. These are issues that actually matter to all of us. Mm -hmm. I, I would just add to that, that, um, you know, I think that um, there's been a yearning among many of us, understandable, to return to normal, to pre-pandemic. And I hope we don't return to normal when it comes to labor um, and, uh, you know, dirty work and other forms of labor in this country, because what was accepted was this system that was grossly unequal on yeah gender lines, on racial lines, on class lines, uh, on moral lines, and largely, uh, you know, see, it, it was normalized, but it shouldn't have been as accepted. And if, if we actually scrutinized the experiences of so many during that time. So if we're seeing convulsions and sort of cracks in the fissure uh, that held all of that together, I think that's a good thing. It's an opportunity to go somewhere better. Mm -hmm. We'll be back with more after this message. Dreaming of a long-awaited vacation? Take your travels to the next level with Alaska Airlines. They're committed to providing a higher standard of safety and cleanliness throughout your journey. From mask requirements and touch-free options to HEPA filters on board and fresh air every two to three minutes. Plus, their award-winning loyalty program, Mileage Plan, makes it easy to earn and redeem miles wherever you go, including destinations worldwide, thanks to their One World Alliance membership. If you're ready to land a low fare, next-level care, and the best experience in the air, book now at alaskaair.com. All right, there are a lot of great questions from the audience. Um, I hope we'll get some of these in. I mean, I wish we could answer all of them. Um, here's one. Are there other countries that get things more right when it comes to honoring or doing right by workers who do these dirty jobs? 
Yes. I mean, I think that that I say in the book, this is a study of America. I think dirty work exists in every society. It's this kind of universal. I posit that it's this kind of universal dynamic and you'll find it anywhere. Um, you know, India had a whole class of people called the untouchables. Um, so and what is that? It's people doing dirty work who then don't get to touch, you know, the Brahmins and the elites because they're contaminated. Um, so these concepts are general. But in my book, I talk about um, the German labor minister's response when in Germany there were COVID outbreaks among meatpacking workers. And the factory owners, the, the head of the company, blamed this on the fact that so many of the workers were um, living in unclean conditions and, and weren't actually German. They had, been, they had come from Poland and other countries. And the German labor minister just said, that's absurd. You know, this this whole industry, he called it, I think, a, 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 you know, a, a system of of irresponsibility where everyone none of the companies sort of accept responsibility for the conditions they've created. They did not invoke the Defense Production Act to force those workers back to the plants um, and make sure that Germans could eat their you know, meat without thinking about the conditions. Um, changes were made. And so it is about power. It's about politics. It's about what we demand and not everyone does it the way America does. Mm -hmm. Although right. conditions in a okay. lot of those things are edging in our direction rather than the other way around. I was on a panel with yes. a, a lovely young man from the Norwegian labor movement the other day. And, you know, although his idea of a shrinking labor movement was from 57% union density to 50%, um, it is still trending towards the U.S. system in a lot of places. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right, uh, so many great questions. Okay, here's another one. Um, can you talk about parents, particularly women, leaving the workforce over the past few years to care for children and what lasting effects this may have on the economy slash social structure? So I start my book with a chapter on the unpaid work in the home that is mostly still done by women. And there is a big connection with the fact that we are still expected as women to be responsible for the majority of the caring labor in the home, 2022, still true, and the pandemic really underscored that, um, and the fact that a lot of jobs that are gendered feminine are also low paid jobs and often, again, kinds of dirty jobs. So I think we have to understand the lack of respect and attention paid to the reproductive labor that needs to be done in the home as something, again, that is connected to all of our working conditions, whether or not we have children, right? I'm a 42-year-old woman who is not married and does not have children and does not plan on having children, but the conditions that people have in the home will affect my working conditions everywhere. So one of the really great things that we got out of the first and probably only big Biden bill that we'll ever see was the child, fam the family tax allowance, right, that, that, that it would become fully refundable. So people would actually get cash payments, a form of basic income, basically, for children. And this comes, you know, 30 years-ish, slightly less than 30 years after welfare reform, which took away a lot of the access to family support for single women in particular. Um, so that was, in its way, a statement that, like, child rearing 
is work, it's hard, and it's something that all of us in society should be invested in, whether or not we have personally had children. And this is going to be, again, like, especially important if I can just bring up the leaked Supreme Court memo, it wants to make sure that I have to have children, whether I like it or not, um, that, you know, so we have sort of a society that mostly wants to make child rearing entirely your individual burden. And also at this point, looks like they want to make sure we're forced into doing it. And that is the opposite of how it should be, right? Is that we should have safe legal abortion everywhere. And also fully funded childcare programs, supports for people who have children, but much better access to preschool, medical care, all of the things that kids need, because we saw in so many ways, the crisis that is caused by an entirely privatized childcare system during the pandemic when even the things that people normally count on to take your kids off your hands for a little while, i.e. the public schools, were shut down in person. Not that teachers weren't teaching, because teachers were desperately trying to be engaging on one of these things, but the childcare function of the schools is gone, and it just led to people falling apart, and that has led to women having to leave the workforce in droves, and it's still women, which is, yeah. Mm -hmm. All right, we're almost out of time. Maybe I'll squeeze in one more question. Um, you guys have touched on this in several ways, but um, just to ask directly, what can cities and communities do to support workers and improve conditions and wages, especially when most of these positions are at private companies? Well, I would say not all of them, at least in my, the, the jobs. I, if, I, if, if we think about um, you know jobs in the prison system or in jails, um, those are often... Uh, public employees, or those are employees that, um, you know, are act carrying out a public function. So one responsibility we have as citizens is to um, be informed of what is being done in our name, even if you don't agree with the policies that led to those conditions. Um, your taxes and often your elected officials are shaping uh, laws and policies that um, are connected to, to all of us. And so that's, that's, it's not all in the private sector. Yeah. And cities and states have a lot that they can do in terms. And again, I, we're talking in Seattle, so I feel like you, you're in a wonderful place for examples on this front for all sorts of things that can help workers and also things that can be not so great, like the recent bill about Uber drivers, accepting that Uber drivers are not employees. But anyway, um, we don't have that much time, but you can raise the minimum wage. You can put in restrictions on hours. Right. Starbucks was notorious for so-called clopenings. So places have put in things like retail workers and care and service workers bills of rights, restricting on-call shifts. There are so many, so many things you can do in your city and state to figure out how to improve workers' rights um, that are public policy, that are in the public domain. You can't fund OSHA on a state level, but you can put in a state labor department that does these things too, right? So there's actually a lot you can do politically and personally, you know, find your local picket line, go walk it. If you go to Starbucks, you can order your drink and say Union Strong as your name. Um, there are all sorts of ways you can support workers in all sorts of industries. Um, it just takes sort of looking around and um, follow your favorite labor journalists on the internet because we will tell you what's going on. <laughs> great, thank you so much. That's such a great way to wrap up, I feel. Uh, read these books, everybody, and follow these journalists. Um, thank you so much, uh, Ail, Sarah, for being here. I really appreciate your thoughts today. Thank you. Thank, thank you. And that's it for today's episode. Thanks again to both Sarah's and Ale. 
And thanks also to the folks in the audience who asked questions. If you'd like to be one of those audience members for a future CrossCut event, go to crosscut.com events. This episode of CrossCut Talks was produced by Sarah Bernard and engineered by Rusty Bacall and Victoria Ralph. And the event was produced by Jake Newman and Andrea O'Meara. And Chris Novich managed our audience engagement. You can subscribe to CrossCut Talks wherever you listen. And if you like the show, please review us. It helps other people find us. For the latest political, environmental, and culture news from the Pacific Northwest, visit CrossCut.com. And if you would like to support the work that we do at CrossCut, whether it's the live events we host every month or the in-depth reporting we deliver every day, go to CrossCut.com membership. In addition to supporting our journalism, members receive complete access to the on-demand programming of Seattle's PBS station, KCTS 9. Crosscut Talks is a product of Cascade Public Media. I'm Mark Baumgarten. We'll be back soon with another conversation.